0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Today is Tuesday, April 11, 2023. I'm here with Federica Caraghetti. He's a lecturer in history and political economy at King's College London. Before joining the faculty at King's, Professor Carrigetti was at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences, and before that, she was the Associate Director of the Ostrom Workshop in Political Theory and Policy Analysis at Indiana University. Uh, Professor Carrigetti received her PhD in Classics from Stanford University uh, in a joint program also with Political Science, and her BA and MA in Philosophy from the University of Bologna. Uh, she is the author of Crafting a Constitution, Uh, Law, Democracy, and Growth in Ancient Athens, which was published by Princeton in 2019. And she's a co-author with Margaret Levy of A Moral Political Economy, uh, Present, Past, and Future, which was published by Cambridge in 2021. Uh, Thank you, uh, Federica, for joining me today. Thank you, Pete, for having me. So let's start. uh, How does a scholar of classics end up a scholar doing formal political theory in democracy and development? Okay, let me let me let me clear out some of the premises
2: that are um, correct, but perhaps there is a different way of putting it. I was a scholar of classics for 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 a hot five minutes, uh, but I I think it is fair to say that I was never a scholar of classics in the way that most uh, people are scholars of classics. I went to Stanford to study with Josh Ober and to study particularly the functioning of the Athenian democracy, and I was sort of obsessed. With coming from Italy in the late 1990s and early 2000s, about the relation between political power and information. And I arrived at Stanford before the PhD. This was sort of like a visiting uh, stint that I did there. And Joshua put in my hands democracy and knowledge. And I was like, oops, (laughs) someone thought about that. Um, And so then I went back and I did my PhD, but I was sort of like a working on uh, questions of politics and political economy from the Uh, get-go. It seems perhaps absurd that one would learn ancient Greek in order to do that. But that's how it went down. So uh, uh, here I am. And very early on, this was like the time when Josh's collaboration with Barry Wangas was really uh, blossoming. Um, I got sort of like a, uh, you know, lucky enough to be there at the time when these two amazing scholars and, and thinkers and people were uh, really hacking at what Classical Athens and other pre-modern societies could be saying for political economists, and so I sort of like a jumped on that bandwagon right from essentially my second semester when Josh and Barry taught a class. Uh, that was the first year it was called High Stakes Politics, and I never left. Um, and I think that my my the way that I understand my contribution, if there is any at all, uh, in this line of thinking, is to sort of like a broaden the scope of. You know what is there when we think about political economy through the lens of pre-modern society uh, what can we say and what can we not say so this i think is going to be uh, in part um, what we're going to be talking about later on uh the question of formal theory is really related to the question of method um this is again in partly in part related to the project that josh and barry were um uh, sort of like exploring that always had game theory and sort of like a Relatively easy formal methodology at hand as a tool that that, that held a, a great explanatory power, but for me, what, as a as a classical historian, in some respects at least, how I thought about myself in the early days of the PhD, uh, the the formal methods really enabled uh, some theoretical advancement against the backdrop of of a, of a historical method based on empirical evidence. So what is the empirical evidence can only we can only say what is in the books. But of course when you think about the evidence formation in Athens, what's in the books is very little if you want to really understand the development of political institutions. So formal methodology allowed a, that sort of like a leap of faith perhaps um, to understand the process of institutional development in a way that the sources were simply not able to tell us.
1: There's kind of also a little bit of a concelience going on at the time, too, because there's a changing of our understanding of the empirical record of ancient Athens as well. Right. Uh, So it's experiencing more economic growth than we thought and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, leveraging that with the formal methods is actually kind of one of the parts that you're. Yeah.
2: Exactly. No, it was uh, really the best time to be a uh, you know uh, to be doing what 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 Josh and Barry and Ian Morris and Walter Scheidel the sort of like so called Stanford School of, of ancient history uh, were beginning to do, um, and uh, or had just begun to do, um, and I think it is fair to say that whereas the uh, a part of the, the sort of like a, the approach was really to dig into the evidence and try to assess it. Uh, through social scientific methodologies uh, and see sort of developments in terms of growth development in terms of uh, uh, democracy and so on and so forth what i was exposed to in terms of like the the josh and Barry particularly was sort of let's jump on the bandwagon of economic growth like we have Significant evidence, and of course, particularly Josh, we start continuing to like look at the 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 empirical evidence coming out of ancient Greece. But it was really a change of paradigm. Like we are asking different questions, not just because, exactly as you're saying, not just because we have new methods, but also because we are being showered with evidence that seems to suggest a very different story than what we had known before. And so it was really the best time to be studying ancient history through a social science approach
1: i i I promise i won't try to uh, push you to to focus on methodology for too long but i I wanted to ask you a little bit about your methodology because you're you're very self-consciously challenging a lot of uh, people's ideas about what we can learn from pre-modern societies and you know taking uh also countering various objections concerning the size Uh, the homogeneity and exclusionary practices. And I was just wondering if you could maybe articulate that a little bit for the audience, because they can learn from this issue having to do with the case involved, but also questions of case selection um, and others. Because besides, you know, ancient Athens, we also can learn from, say, for example, you know, the whole debate about Italy, for example, and the history of Italy and southern and northern Italy and those kind of things that the two kingdoms of Sicily and, you know, these kind of things. And so there's there's just a lot in there to unpack for political economists. And I was I was hoping that you could address the issue of the size, the homogeneity and the exclusion.
2: Yeah, so the, the, I think there is two parts to this question. One is about like what we can do with these cases uh, from pre-modern society and how much we can sort of like stretch the comparative paradigm. And the second is well, once we have established that those cases are actually perhaps worth looking into, what can we do with them for a broader understanding of political and economic dynamics? So let me sort of like a, uh, take the first the first step. I think that. Athens is, uh, so now I'm engaged in a much broader, sort of like a data collection about collective governance institutions essentially across Uh, History, uh, where I am feeling very sad to have abandoned the case of Athens, because it is, in fact, extremely well documented compared to essentially anything else that we see uh, emerging from the historical record, at least in terms of collective governance institutions. Um, And so, once we have uh, cases like this, or in general, when we're asking questions uh, about political institutions uh, uh, in the pre modern world, how much can we stretch this comparative paradigm? How much can we really say that these cases uh, speak to problems that we see today. And so in trying to, particularly for my first book, in trying to articulate the main uh, challenges from a political economy, from the political economic theory, at least, uh, uh, size, homogeneity, and exclusion uh, really came up as the most obvious. And perhaps not the only ones, but certainly the most obvious. And so the story about Athens and the story about other cases of pre-modern development is that, well, you know, the, the, the city is so small, cooperation and collaboration are are easier. And I think that's fair to say that that is true. But I also don't think that we should stretch that too far. Athens is a massive place if you walk (laughs) and have zero ways of communicating with your uh, partners that are not, I don't know, Again, like technologically, like from the perspective of uh, infrastructure and communication technology, this is a place that has extraordinary uh, significant limits and that makes collaboration and cooperation difficult, right? So the idea that from DeLorean mines, to Athens, uh, you know, it takes today. It takes what, like a a bike ride or something. That was not the case in in ancient Athens. And so, uh, we need to consider the question of size within the technological and geographical challenges that the Athenians themselves faced in the fifth and the fourth century BC. Uh, once we do that, we still uh, we're still left with the fact that Athens is smaller than most modern cases. But I think the way that I think I think about about it is that I try to flip that as a benefit, as an advantage instead of a challenge. Um, it is smaller, it is simpler, and therefore we can actually understand processes of institutional dynamic, institutional dynamics better, more clearly. Than we can in vast, complex societies, um, and whether that is possible or not is, I think, still open to debate. I don't think that my 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 book or the work of Josh Ober before me and others has established whether that is, in fact, you know, a, 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 the truth or not. But this is the claim that size certainly Athens is smaller than most modern nations, but that the challenges to cooperation are similar, right, in terms of communication technology, in particular. Uh, The second has to do with homogeneity, which, again, it's a question of whether we think about Athens through the lens of modern, uh, uh, sort of like, um, what matters today, or if we think about Athens as uh, through the lens of what mattered then. And, of course, there is a to some extent we cannot know what matter then, but certainly uh, questions of heterogeneity based on ethnicity or religion it tend to be the sort of like a, uh, the, the, the traits that modern political economy looks at. We don't see that in Athens, but should we then conclude that Athens was a homogeneous society, in which again, cooperation was simple because everyone shared the same language. And I think it is, again, fair to say, sure. There were challenges to cooperation that we face in modern, large scale societies that the Athenians did not face. But we still have plentiful evidence of discord, of civil war, of war. And we should try to understand what traits made cooperation difficult in Athens. And so if it's, sort of, it's, it's a matter of sort of like shifting the categories in some respects. And so in Athens in particular, like social economic condition and ideas about oligarchy or democracy, sort like of ideas about like ideal types of governance, uh, certainly created rifts among people. And so in that respect, the Athenians were uh, not as homogeneous as I think most people think of. Them. Finally, there's a the question of exclusion. And this has been, I think, one of the most interesting things that came out of the, the dissertation originally, and then the book, uh, is to think about the question of uh, um, sort of like a exclusion and inclusion. Because of course, if we think about Athens, we look at a political system that had an extraordinary level of inclusion, if we uh, consider its historical counterparts. So Persia, for example, that's usually the the comparison. And it's like, no, the Athenians were pretty inclusive if if the alternative is uh, Darius. Uh, But of course, the Athenians were not as inclusive as we would like them to be, uh, compared to, again, uh, standards that we apply from Western liberal democracies. Um, And so once again, the process is one of sort of like unpacking what exclusion and inclusion meant in Athens. And so when uh, part of the book project uh, and the, the uh, one uh, sort of like a long article uh, that came out of it was to try to think about the process of extending inclusion that went on in ancient Athens in the period that in post Post-constitution that I that I was looking at. And we see this really remarkable process of expanding inclusion in these selected spheres. Um, and I think that there's a lot there to be to be said about the ways in which political economy think about inclusions for very good reasons about political inclusion, but uniquely about political inclusion, which is of course a very high stakes demand. Um, I think that what pre-modern societies can do by Sort of like a removing almost uh, by by definition the idea that there would be any sort of like a normative or positive reason to have any anything, uh, uh, remotely uh, close to universal inclusion. We see in Athens in the course of the fourth century this sort of like a gradual process of expansion of inclusion that I think can tell us a lot about what you know on the one hand uh, how the process of extending inclusion might work, but also how it can work in the context of a post conflict sort of like a, a, a situation, uh, particularly when it comes to sort of like a very different demands. Um, so how do you integrate demands in a post-conflict setting? Uh, this was uh, uh, what I, I think in, in some respects, again, I went to Stanford thinking about Italy, and I wrote the book thinking about this other case that was very much uh, involved at the time, the case of Myanmar. Um, and I was really trying to think about the process uh, of, of inclusion and constitution-making in Athens uh, in terms of like what it really told us.
1: No, no, this is great. I, I, I Actually, one of the things I, I, that's a follow-up on this is that um, it's related to the argument about stability and development, because it's about the focus on process as opposed to just initial conditions. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I think that both Barry and Deirdre have identified, Deirdre more colorful criticisms, very more subtle like criticisms in some sense of the standard neo-institutionalism, Asimoglu and Robinson, but also North Wallace and Weingast, is that a lot of the story that they tell is all baked into the initial conditions. And so they don't really, they explain the location of a society, not the transitions of the society. And you argue with In a paper with Barry that's in public choice that, you know, your, your focus is on these transitions. Like, how is it that you go from, you know, the natural state to get onto the doorstep conditions to then from the doorstep conditions? And your story that you tell about pre modern ancient Athens actually is laying that story out. And so I, I wanted you to sort of articulate a little bit on that focus on processes of transition. Uh, that you 've developed i mean you you go over this again in your annual review piece as well, and how is it you how do you build that kind of institutional infrastructure that doesn 't just happen overnight, <laughs> and it takes little small steps here and there and i really i think it 's very wise the point that you just made about trying to view these societies within the context within which they existed too, so again, you know in our standard game theoretic perspective the idea of cooperation being non-problematic is when we have small groups of agents that are homogeneous, that's because we can rely purely on reputation mechanisms. But in a world where transportation from one side of the city to the other side of the city is actually quite vast and that there's actually more than, you know, there's there's thousands of people rather than just a small group of uh, 200 people or whatever. We can't rely on reputation mechanisms. We have to find these other institutional substitutions, right? And so, you know, being able to identify those things is is crucial to understanding development. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, and you know, I, I think that this was actually uh, ended up in a in a in a paper with uh, um, Barry and Gillian Hatfield, and I think that that was really the point where I started thinking about Athens as this really remarkable case because, in some respects, from the perspective of an ancient historian, which probably none of your audience or. no no one's interested in this right now, but like, I I think that, you know, uh, my, my book and my work is always subject to the, to the provisor that, you know, I'm looking at some of the evidence, but not others. And if you really look at all the evidence you look at, you know, you can tell a story about Athens that is built on reputation. It's the reputation of the orators that give speeches in the assembly. And they're there for a bunch of years. And it's like, And that is fair enough, right? And so in in trying to highlight some of the dynamics, the institutional processes that I do with the methodology that I use, I'm not trying to tell a story in which reputation did not matter. I'm just trying to tell a story in which it, couldn't have mattered for some, uh, for the stability of the social order to the extent that that you know for as long as it lasted, and I think that in some respects, thinking about speeches in the assembly, you always get roped into the Demosthenes or the Pericles of the of the era, uh, but when you think about enforcement, things become really interesting, and so the paper with Jillian and Barry was a paper that was trying to, to explain how coordination in the absence of a police force, coordination in the absence of centralized enforcement works because at that point, it is not just what the monopolist tells you with his reputation. It's about the principles, norms, and institutions that regulated lay citizens. And so again, the Demosthenes and the Pericles mattered a great deal in Athens, like our politicians uh, matter today as well. But you cannot explain the level of development, I think it is fair to say, of a polis, of a place like ancient Athens just by relying on reputational mechanism. So, um, so that was a uh, you know that was really I think that when, when we were starting when we were thinking about the the enforcement part it really clicked for me that this was a, a particularly important case. Um, when it comes to the question of transitions that you were that you were asking uh, before, I think that for me that was the you know if I ever had any any sort of like a question mark when I was talking to Barry it was always the you know at the point where. Social the transitions, uh, pr- transitional processes, were framed in the logical formal uh, political theory uh, as transitions between equilibria. And I was looking at this evidence of these speeches and these inscriptions and these coins, and these were telling this extraordinarily complex story. That then I tried, and this was like why it took me five years to publish that book from the dissertation. I was trying to sell to political economists the story of the black box of the of the shock. How do you get from one equilibrium to another? Well, it's a lot of fighting and it's a lot of uh, sort of like uh, processes that are, and here's the the, the additional challenge, processes that are really hard to grasp. This is change that is normative uh, in the the real sense of the word. And so it was very difficult for me to figure out how to sell the language of process to political economists. And I struggled with that a lot. So the question, the the book uh, on the constitutional transition is the story of this consensus building that occupied a good chunk of my uh, sort of like a PhD years. Uh, I know that this is going on, but how do I formalize it? How do I speak, uh, how do I uh, communicate it in a language that political economists uh, can understand? And I'm not really sure that I actually succeeded there, but I think that that in part speaks to my inability to do so, but it also speaks to the challenge. Of to today, uh, of thinking about what happens in those moments of transition, and I don't think that we have, uh, as economists or political economists, we have sort of like agreed on a language that is
1: not the language of equilibrium. <laughs> yeah, you no, know, it's a it's a big puzzle that we all face from fundamental theory to to any kind of application. For a lot of institutional economists, you know, the sort of Stephen Chung. Uh, discussion of the 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 equilibrium contract between the bee you know farmers and the orchard growers you know and we always say oh look at how they came up with an optimal contract or whatever and I always try to tell my students but at one point there must not have been a contract and they must have recognized that there was a conflict and so the explanation has to give priority to the cleverness and creativity of the individuals that occupy our models that come up with these various different solutions along the way in uh you know what you could be is evolution towards a solution rather than the idea of just a solution concept. And I think Barry actually is is uh, I don't know if it's because of you or whatever, but if you read his critique of what he calls the neoclassical fallacy, right? The neoclassical institutional fallacy, I think that's what he's getting at, is that they've lost track of the ability to explain the process of institution formation in some sense. And whether or not we have the right language for it is still tough. Yeah. And I think, you know, in some respects, the, the, the
2: book project was born as a paper in which I was applying the the self-enforcing constitution paper that he wrote with Sonia Mittal uh, about uh, the U.S. Uh, to Athens. And so what I was trying to get at uh, was uh, essentially what they called, uh, harking, back, uh, harking back to, to Doug North, uh, adaptive efficiency. But then again, you know, it's what I call consensus, they call adaptive efficiency. We're making strides or maybe, maybe steps towards a, some sort of like a language that can give us a way to talk about what happens during that shock. But I don't, you know, maybe I just simply, this is the, the product of my ignorance, but I don't know that we have a strong theoretical way of thinking about uh, these moments. And I think that that's where things matter. Like everyone is able to explain, expose the, uh, wh- you know, why given, uh, given give sufficient evidence, uh, why, why the solution is self-enforcing uh, with the benefit of hindsight, but how people get there, and I think that that was for me what was really motivating my comparison with Myanmar, is that it just we don't want to do that, right? And this was the same stuff that I was seeing, of course. You know, uh, pardon me, the the, the absurd uh, comparison in some respects, but it is it is not obvious that people with fundamentally different ideas of what the world look like looks like uh, would agree on uh, rules and values that are to govern uh, their lives moving forward. I think very often we see the continuation of conflict. And Athens stood out to me as a case uh, in which that did not happen.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the potential for conflict at all times is, you know, breaks down, right? All things. So it's it's really uh, the process of development at some level is the process of turning, I mean, I don't know how you'll react to this, but turning all these sharp objects that could be impediments to lead to conflict and violence, but dulling them enough so that rather than eliminating them, we actually don't get mortally wounded by them, but we continue to get through. But it's still we're getting scraped and bruised. And you know, I I, I know that you worked at the uh, the Ostrom Workshop, and and uh, I've I've done a lot of work on Eleanor and Vincent over the years, and I knew them both. And um, one of the things that was always amazing with Lynn. Uh, was her laugh. You know, she had this amazing, affectious laugh. But if you listen to any of the interviews where they one of the things that she says is, uh, What's one of the first things that we learned? And she laughs and she says, People argue. <laughs> they, you know, they're in conflict all the time, you know, and they figure out ways in which they could cooperate in the face of all of that. Um, that's what she's really trying to get at. And they're negotiating their space. And I think that. She had a language to try to talk about process, but it's not one that's universally accepted, right? But it's one that was one way in which she tried to do that. And, uh, you know, we're all just trying to figure this out. But, you know, our language is much easier to understand when we have solution concepts, right? That those are easier. And, you know, one way to think about what she was talking about, and I think it related to your project in general, is, you know, there is a point in which the game requires that we actually generate the common knowledge by which we play the game. And if we don't have that common knowledge, then we can't play the game in the first place. We break down into conflict. So how is it that we form? What are the processes by which we actually come to form the common knowledge by which we can then play the game from?
2: Yeah, no, and honestly, you know, the more the more I work, and the more I feel that my entire career and way of thinking is subsumed by what Lynn Ostrom did <laughs> in her career. So uh, sometimes that feels a little frustrating, but but also mostly uh, exciting and engaging. Uh, in the sense that you, you're right, uh, it is a tradition of institutional analysis that, in fact, they try to develop a parallel language, and I think that it did an enormous uh, sort of like a, a you know, it's an enormous gift of scholarship uh, that language. Um, um, I, I, I also don't think that it has translated as wild, widely, I guess, enough uh, to become a sort of like a, a lingua franca of institutional analysis. I think it's fair, d- despite the fact that the uh, sort of like Ustromian community is is large and, and alive and kicking. And so I think that that's a, you remind me of, of a very important sort of like attempt uh, beside the, of that of uh, sort of like the institutional tradition associated with Doug North and, and Barry and, and others. I mean, I guess that the other thing that that these comments uh, suggested, and I think that this is the other Ostromian project or Ostromian influence in in what I I try to do, um, is the idea that it is very difficult to talk about development if you presume to know where that where that process ends. And I, I think that when I was studying Athens, and I was honestly like, you know, I was a PhD in classics that, that was spending her summers in, in Sierra Leone working with uh, you know paralegal organizations to try to figure out how. These guys were governing and, and and resolving disputes in a world in which the state was uh, incapable of, of reaching. Uh, you know, where there's like 30 lawyers in Freetown, and and uh, and that's that's it. So you know, good luck building uh, courts. Um, and I was trying to figure out. You know, th- that was like what was really animating my work. And in some respects, uh, I was pu- really puzzled to hear that what the law and development community was doing was to try to think about how to build courts and train lawyers, which of course. Is of enormous value, but here I was in this like thriving legal normative space where people were doing law; <laughs> they were just not doing it in the way that Western legal philosophers and practitioners and and lawyers uh, did it. And in some respects, some of the the tools that they were using were really reminding me of, of my work uh, on 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 other societies. But that for me was like a real, again, like a wake up call. Like there is no obvious answer here as to what kind of institution is needed in order to get to the goal where like people don't kill each other or steal from each other or you know do all the things that we associate with. Uh, constitutional and and legal uh, governance. And and I think that this is really the other part of your earlier question, which is what, you know, once we've established that pre-modern societies and particularly well-developed, well-documented societies like Athens are a comparative case, what do we do with them? And I think that the greatest gift in some respects of of these places is that they really discipline our thinking about what lies inside when the, you know, when the fighting ends, because it is not obvious that anyone needs to go to Denmark or Sweden and certainly not the United States. Well, you know, with all the respect that I have for, for a country that I now miss very much.
1: You know, I I was going to try, you you know, your work is so filled with fascinating ideas. And one of the ones that I just came across was this paper in the most, in the winter issue of Daedalus, which is on these uh, governance archaeology, which is your database that you were just talking about. But this just fascinated me in the discussion that you just had about uh, self-governance or, you know, governance in environments different than our own, uh, which is what you were just talking about, because that's all part of building this imagery of various different possible worlds that we could imagine. So talk a little bit about this, this project. You know, we,
2: we talked earlier about transitions, and this is really where places like Athens can tell you a lot, because the evidence is really remarkable. Uh, And so you combine economic growth, democracy, constitutionalism, and a a decent amount of evidence, and you're like, okay, I I can spend a few years of my life studying this. Uh, When you get out of uh, Athens, Rome, and other Western, uh, essentially, cases, uh, uh, the evidence becomes really, really difficult. And so uh, it it becomes certainly difficult to do the kind of sort of like a diachronic uh, study on transitions. And so what I'm trying to do now is to look at places particularly uh, focusing beyond Western uh, Europe or sort of like a, a canonical associated societies, and uh, and to think more, about, uh, more broadly about what collective governance ha- has looked like uh, through the ages uh, in places that range from sub-Saharan Africa to uh, so, Indigenous North America to Oceania and Southeast Asia, and so on and so forth. And so, it is a data, the database is trying to uh, take a very serious look at these uh, institutions for collective governance. On the one hand, this is the empirical part, right? So we're looking at collective governance institutions across space and time. Uh, pre-modern. And we're trying to figure out what did collective governance look like uh, in places that we don't know very much about. Um, And again, like the the sort of takeaway from that project is to really learn a little bit more about collective governance institutions per se. And what we are learning is that collective governance, and this is again on the heels of work of people like David Savage and, and other people that have started to seriously take a Uh, seriously, the experience of past societies uh, beside the Western canon. Uh, What we're learning is that there's collective governance essentially as soon as you start looking. But in many cases, it uh, did not look like ancient Athens, but it was nested within this much more hierarchical structures. And this is extremely interesting to me because what this work is all about is not to sort of like at the end of the at the end of the day uh, go to a political economist, let alone a, a politician and say, Oh, you know what, I've got the empirical evidence that suggests that we can govern ourselves collectively, like top, you know, top to bottom. And of course that's that's I don't think that's feasible. And so the question is how you nest participatory, inclusive collective governance within more hierarchical structures. And I think that this this database project might help us, you know, begin. Uh, sort of like a hack at that question. Uh, the second problem, however, is the problem of the evidence that becomes, as I, as I was mentioning earlier, and this is what we were focusing on in the Daedalus piece, as soon as we get out of the West, it becomes extraordinarily limited uh, and it is often filtered through the lens of uh, colonial domination. And, and in some respects, this is, you know, any uh, anthropologist, sociologist, and ethnographer knows this, but if you look at, for example, some of the uh, information for sub-Saharan African societies, for for many years, from the work of, uh, you know, people like Fortas and Evan pritchard so I'm not talking about, you know, unknown uh, uh, figures here. You know, these people were, 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 were suggesting things like, the, you know, there is no governance institutions in these societies again this will sound tremendously heuristic but uh, it's it, it is it is impossible <laughs> in some respects it is impossible that uh, a, a society of any sort of like a significant scale uh, did not have means to uh, govern itself uh, uh, in terms of decision making in terms of enforcement in terms of the decisions that allow people to access or not institutions and so on and so forth so i'm trying to sort of like a way through the evidence uh, and we are trying to do this with what we call this ethical ancestry uh, which is a sort of like a a serious look at where the evidence comes from uh, and an attempt in time uh, to really lease and engage with scholars from around the world, scholars that speak more languages than we do, uh, scholars that are familiar with things like world histories and traditions of scholarship that are not as hip and the West. And, and to really start to sort of like, you know, again, this is supposed to be like a, we call it a global commons of collective governance practices. So the echoes of are of again, uh, very, very present and very clear. But we're trying to do this with a sense that the evidence that we are looking at is wildly
1: imprecise, uh, and that we need to pay attention to that. Well, you're dealing, as Christina Becerri says it, you know, norms in the wild, right? So one of the things that, that um, I'm not sure that your colleagues, a couple of your colleagues at King's College would be familiar with stuff that, that we've been doing over the years. But it's, uh, it's uh, we have a lot of corresponding interest. So this issue of endo- what, we, what we call endogenous rule formation, which is how is it that you rather than treating the institutions as exogenous and then studying the pattern of behavior in it, how is it that those institutions evolve and, and over time? And so when I was actually thinking about doing my dissertation, if if your Daedalus article had come out when I was a graduate student, I would have been like a puppy dog at your door asking to be part of your project because i I read this book, uh, Sally Falkmore's Law as a Process." It's about like in uh, you know, basically an anthropological examination of of these things. And I was really fascinated by this endogenous rule. Uh, formation and you know we have tried to do that with respect to transition development and failed in weak states and also natural disasters any time any kind of way where you can test bed the ideas where you put pressure on them so that the existing institutions are the reason why the the, the system is in chaos that needs to somehow evolve and and um, so anyway it's I'm, I'm totally. Like I'm completely a fanboy and and fascinated by what you're doing, um, because of this. I, I don't know if you, I don't know if you're familiar with it or maybe I missed a. But there's also this really cool project that's going on in Europe right now called um, on constitutional compliance. Do you know this literature at all? Stefan Voigt, who's in Hamburg, is doing this major data set on constitutional compliance, which tries to, you know, one way is that sometimes constitutions are just incentive incompatible, but another time, you know, they, they may in fact be you know, the norms may disagree, you know, like all kinds of different things. So it relates again to your questions that you're talking about in that paper with, as you mentioned, with Barry and Jillian Hatfield, that's in the journal Legal Analysis, right? You know, it's, it's so anyway, I mean, I just think there's a lot of people that are very fascinated by this at the moment. So hopefully we can find a language.
2: So I, I think so and so let me let me just add a little pebble to this because I think that this is a an extraordinarily important development that is relatively recent and I think still like you know more niche that, than, than it should be. But let me give a shout out to the work that Jillian uh, is doing today, like, as in like these days, uh, which I think is really, um, you know, I don't know if it's contributing to a language, but it is certainly contributing some ways of thinking that are like new and interesting and different. And so, uh, she has been thinking about, uh, evolution norms, uh, in context for, for, for many, many years and Part of the attempt at sort of like a, a looking at Athens was again, the attempt to look at user a, a sort of a large scale, so to speak society, as opposed to looking at, you know, small, you know, bands uh, or small groups, uh, uh, which is where the sort of like a law and economics literature was leaving us, right? You think about the early, the, the cattle ranchers and the diamond dealers. Uh, we th- we know about like the evolution of norms. Uh, we know how they get to be self-enforcing, but we, again, we have these problems of size and, and homogeneity and other versions of that uh, that make it difficult to uh, sort of like essentially generalize. Um, and the case of Athens that we were looking at was the case of, uh, you know, larger scale society, uh, certainly a society that was sort of, again, like productively developed and and was around for a while. And so the question of like how to do that at that scale was uh, somewhat different than thinking about the cattle ventures. Or the or the diamond dealers, um, or the gold or the gold miners, um, and so that's where sort like we left it there in I do 2015 with Jillian, who has now sort of like enlisted uh, the the uh, entire world of computer science and agent based modeling uh, to try to really think about this question in a new way. And I think that this is a, an extraordinarily important development. And again, I don't think that this is necessarily going to. Um, I mean, it will eventually. Uh, continue the theory building into a a language but what this is allowing us is to play with models that are extremely more complex than what we were able to do even like, you know, 10 years ago. Um, And in that that complexity, we can begin to really play with questions of norms, of values, of the complexity of human behavior, of the complexity of motivation, um, and so on and so forth. And I think that this is in fact, uh, you know, to the extent that it it is possible for, uh, you know, people like me or Jillian, uh, scholars in the social sciences, to seriously engage, you know, people that speak a very different language. I think that there there are enormously productive uh, potentially outcomes uh,
1: there. It's a a big aspect of all this. There's a great book, by the way, that just came out last year, but Harvard called We the Miners by uh, Andrea McDowell. And it's about self-governance in the California gold rush. And it's it's the same thing like what you're talking about with the cattle ranchers, like the old Alex and Peace or whatever. And it's just that there's a lot of really You know, it's a big, thick book too, so it's filled with details, and so there's so much uh, fascinating history. But I I wanted to give you some time to talk about this other project, which is related to the moral political economy, uh, you know, project um, that you did with the 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 Cambridge Elements monograph with Margaret Levy. And you know, now I might be reading too much into it, and so you can you know tell me I'm wrong or whatever. But I, I do think that it's a short book that has a very powerful message, but the messages go in slightly different directions, depending on who you're listening to uh, talk about it. So, you know, Margaret, for example, is very concerned with a general critique of of economics at some sense at the moment, and like the neoliberal critique and being part of that uh, conversation. Whereas when I read you, I see more that you're focused on creating space in the social sciences for a broader notion of theory and a richer notion of empirical research or whatever but if uh, if if i hand out the moral political economy to my graduate students which i do what is it that you want to get across to them for developing their research program for the next decade or so
2: so let me just let me just say one thing before before I get going because uh, this is like a, a wild uh, under, under, understatement of, of Margaret's uh, contribution, which I feel the need uh, to to rectify. Margaret has been uh, an intellectual leader and uh, sort of like a you know as as she is in life, uh, sort of like a force of nature behind this project, uh, the book and the uh, the actual sort of program that that she ran, that we ran at the Center for Advanced Studies, and. You know, in many respects, uh, when she started thinking about this in 2017, 2018, uh, we were still thinking in terms of like uh, what the critiques are. But very early on, uh, she essentially began to organize the group that then became sort of a group associated with the more political economy project at CASBIS uh, uh, around the essentially like motto. Okay, we know what's wrong, but now what do we do? Right. So, in some respects, the, the book is really trying to sort of like a begin that conversation because it is very difficult to say what do we do, right? Like, how do we reconstruct the political economic framework? Yes, we know that they are not, you know, uh, uh, stable. It's not stable, but they are not uh, uh, sort of like a fixed. But that is, uh, you know, doesn't get us uh, very far in terms of thinking what is next. And in some respects, it turns out that again like pre-modern societies and collective governance in the wild perhaps uh, can begin to sort of like a move in the direction of like what's next but again it's not in a vacuum right like i think that it is fair to say that what the ruin of neoliberalism or the fragility of neoliberalism has demonstrated is the the sort of like a thirst for participatory spaces, whether they're online or offline. We see experiments around the world with participatory governance. It started out a long time ago. I'm well aware of that, but I think it is fair to say that there are now experiments like large-scale asinist assemblies, the creation of a Permanent citizen assembly in Belgium—that uh, is, a, a, honestly, like a striking development in terms of like a thinking about participation and participatory structures uh, in you know the modern world. Uh, there is a lot of there is a lot of sort of like a, a thirst for for these kinds of spaces, and I this is sort of like a where the evidence from the pre-modern world comes in handy because we don't have a lot of evidence of how to do participation in the West because we have thought for a long time that the sort of like a, you know, representative institutions that were created through the, you know, various uh, important historical moments, the British Revolution, the American Revolution, and so on and so forth, are the telos of development, are the end of development. And once that sort of like a story begins, begins to show some fragility, it is not obvious where to go. To find out what's new. And so you can speculate in the sense of scenarios, you can just like begin to work <laughs> with your friends and neighbors. Uh, but I think that at the level of political institutions, uh, at the level of like, a, a systemic thinking about participation in the modern world, uh, the evidence from pre modern societies is really essential uh, to any sort of like empirically based uh, claim. It's not uniquely essential but it is certainly an important an important story and so but but again if you if you ask me then what this what the my, you know my my vision for the development of this research pro- program is it is certainly not let's all become ancient story and and begin to dig in like I don't know Thailand and try to figure out like how they the participatory governance there so that we can uh, figure out how to do it here I think that the, here is in terms of like the development of the project uh, of more political economies is a very serious, <laughs> collective, interdisciplinary uh, sort of like attempt at reforming a the way we teach political economy, and this is like I'm gonna take a tangent to historical political economy in a moment, uh, but also the you know the way that, the way, I mean the way we teach it, it, not just like what are the theories but also what we tell our students that is possible. And so I teach all my classes trying to get students that have no interest whatsoever uh, in most cases uh, to think creatively about institution buildings uh, to engage in that exercise uh, and I think that the more more political economy uh, can do that of course at the end of the day we all want to figure out what institutions will uh you know enable a fair more sustainable you know society but I don't know that it is my job uh, and certainly it is i don't think it is Anyone's uh, sort of like a solitary job to design the institutions for the future, and so again, this is about how we how we teach and how we think about what is possible. Uh, that is, in some respects, like where I see productive developments of this project
1: uh, moving forward. So we were together in in Chicago to read the the last, I guess, draft before it was published of the um, Narrow Corridor. But um, a year ago, I was also at a, at a similar conference for Bill Easterly's most recent book that isn't, isn't out yet. Um, that was in May of 2022 up at NYU. And, and the book is called uh, Saviors Versus Skeptics. And what's fascinating about it related to what you were just talking about is he goes through the history of development economics And those people who line themselves up as saviors of the societies that they're trying to bring development to versus those who are skeptics and think that development has to be a project of the consent of the individuals that are engaged in the process of development itself. And I think it's a really, really interesting uh, book about that aspect of development by consent, which relates to your point about participation, as opposed to development by technocratic experts who have to rule over you. It's it's an old Ostrom line, right, again, which is the difference between governing with versus governing over. And so much of our social science was done for so long about governing over because we thought we were the trained experts. And part of the fragility that we learned was that, uh, not only was that, um, incorrect, it was damaging <laughs> to the societies, uh, that we were talking to in terms of, uh, all the stuff that came out of it. So I, 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 I'm on board with that aspect of the, the moral political economy project and, um, and the teaching, I think, um, the question, uh, do you have exercises that you give the students to try to get them to think about institution building? I wish. <laughs> No, I don't, uh, because
2: uh, first of all, I don't have PhD students uh, in my current job, which is uh, very sad, and uh, my master students are busy, and I don't want to bother them with, uh, uh, you know, in a one-year, uh, very high-stakes program, uh, bother with the question of uh, serious engagement with, with, uh, with creation. Uh, but they, I think that they get excited. Uh, if I am not a complete fool about my teaching, I think that people get excited. They get out of their, their, their seat, uh, instead of at least sort of like a, a You know, for a moment, when you flip the question, you know, I teach a class that's called institution and economic institutions and economic development. And I don't expect them to learn about, you know, theories and replicate them and, you know, give them like tests and stuff. But I ask them to then apply what they've learned to problems that they see in the world. And I think it is fair to say that, you know, the, the problems are not as creative as I guess I. But I'm also, you know, wondering how we, we ask students to think creatively, creatively and, and but not, you know, pie in the sky. Like, let's build, let's build, a, you know, a ministry. Um, so I don't I don't know that I I think that I've, I've, I'm struggling with uh, getting them on board with the idea. And I haven't quite gotten to the point yet where I am serious about it to the point that I am designing exercises to help them think, in part because I don't know how to do it myself, right? This is what I do with ancient, um, the ancient world. And I can't get too much ancient world in on my students' plate because they, are, they, need, they need jobs, and I got lucky enough, <laughs> but I, you know, it's, it's not, it's not many of us uh, that get, that get jobs doing this kind of work. So uh, I'm very
1: respectful and conscious of the limits <laughs> of this exercise. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, anyway, that, that's, that's a very promising project that's coming out of the center for advanced study and behavioral sciences and, and the different projects that you're doing there. So I think that that's uh,
2: let me, let me just another shout out to, to a friend and a colleague. Um, there is a group at Johns Hopkins that is now building, uh, led by Angus Bergen, who was like a, another like, uh, uh, amazing participant in the more political economy project at CASBUS uh, that is actually trying to think much more systematically about the project of how to teach more political economy to students with a full major um so i i think you know the, these are ideas that i have had the honor and privilege to participate in and that i try to uh sort of like a, uh developing my practice but there are there are other people that are like putting serious time uh into thinking about how to teach more political economy to students um and again in in some respects this is also what you do with uh, the ppe program uh you know this is not a new thing but i think that there is a new there's a new demand and there is a new sort of like a, 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 a wave of thinking about how to teach more political economy to students uh, by crossing disciplinary boundaries, by asking tough questions, by challenging students to think about creatively about institutions. Um, and and this is like a real, you know, if if there is anything in the world to be optimistic about these days, that's that's one thing.
1: We just started a new uh, a new program. I'm not the main driver of it. My colleague Virgil Store and Stephanie Hafley are the main drivers, but it's an annual conference uh, called Markets and Society. And uh, you know, Vivian Zelizer, the, the economic sociologist, was one of the keynotes last year, along with Deirdre and and others. But you know, the the event that's coming up next uh, fall is is already jam packed and they they've really done an amazing job with it and and uh hopefully we can get you to come over someday and 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 do that I think that would be great. Um I'm going to uh I'm going to I'm going to pivot now and ask you a rather uh out of the ballpark question which I I cleared with you in in doing the background sort of of looking at your stuff besides your papers I I learned that you were a professional basketball player and uh, I I love the game of basketball I I love it much more than I was ever able to play it. Uh, So my love of the game far exceeded my skills in playing the game. Um, But I I still am crazy. But what experiences did that life as a professional athlete teach you that you draw on for your scholarly career? Um, So I'm going to be really boring starting out on
2: this question because I think that there is some like absolute truth uh, that sports do for you <laughs> that is the, the disciplining factor. Like I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, if you, if you put me with a task in front of me, like I'll finish it. Like I might, you know, uh, not see the end, you know, it, it, it is a disciplining, uh, school. And I played, uh, I mean, okay. Let me just start by like wildly, uh, so qualifying the term professional basketball player. I was a professional basketball player in the sense that I played basketball and I was received money in return <laughs> it was very little very very little and uh, uh, but it lasted for a very long time and uh, uh so i started playing when i was eight and by the time i like i started playing with the senior team which is how sports work in italy so we are not associated with school uh, pre- uh sort of like sports associations are completely separate and so i started playing with essentially what would be this most senior team when i was very very young when i was 12. And at that point, I started, sort of, you know, they started like throwing some, like a few bucks at me. And then when I went to the United States, the, I, I learned that that was professional sports. And so I now I say <laughs> that I'm a professional athlete, but I don't know that a lot of my friends would consider me a professional. Probably like a semi-professional-ish, something like that. But it was a huge part of my of my life. And honestly, like if you had asked my mother at the age of 14 if I was going to become a university professor, she would have laughed in your face. So that was a, a, but, but again, like you start playing very young uh, in high stakes games. I was touring, I was going all over, it was national championships. Uh, um, I, I had a stint with uh, sort of the national team. Uh, uh, so it, it was, it was a really, it was a serious thing and it was a serious thing for me. And I, everything around life was uh, sort of like in service of, of basketball. Uh, for many, many years. And so that devotion to the cause, perhaps, that sort of like a a passion um, about, like, you know, your practice, that is, I think, something that has translated uh, oddly to the work that I am now doing uh, for, you know... (laughs) But when I'm remunerated a little bit more, I guess that's uh, that's that's one way of saying it. And then uh, I don't know, it, it, but but it is so. In in some sense, it is discipline, and in some sense, it is the passion. And so it's like what sort of like a gets you up in the morning is like the idea that you want to get a little bit better at you know either playing or figuring out like what collective governance institutions looked like in sub-Saharan Africa circa 1500. Um, I think that those are the two things that sports has done for me. And I, you know, I've struggled. I left, I stopped playing when I when I moved to California when I started my PhD. So I was 26, a career marred by like several uh, injuries, so relatively short and uninteresting uh, for most people. But I've really struggled to find that passion again in sports and maybe uh, this is why I've transferred almost entirely to to work, (laughs) maybe that if if you if you find a, an alternative sport maybe you, you don't become as passionate about work as i as i am i don't know
1: well we don't want that to happen so don't but you know but uh you know still still go out there and maybe 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 you'll get involved in coaching at some point
2: i rock climb these days so it's a completely different very different uh, experience <laughs>
1: you'll have to be quite disciplined though but that's um that is a very important lesson i think what you just said discipline and passion i think those are are uh great characteristics that lead to good things uh when we you know focus on that and and especially um you know when you recognize that like basketball for example is a a team game played by individuals and so you know it's always Creativity within the structure of the team maybe that's why I co-author so much well anyway, it's been fantastic talking to you. I wish you all the best uh, with your work I, I I do think that this project that you have laid out in this Daedalus thing has a potential to be very very important for all of our students here and I hope that they uh, will contribute uh, to that literature on this uh archaeology governance archaeology thing so it's really quite amazing. Thank
2: you, Pete. Thank you so much, Pete. It was really a pleasure to see you again and to to chat for a bit.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.